Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, a queer history podcast. My name is Eli. I'm Hamish. I'm Irene. Twice a month we talk to you about a queer history topic from around the world and throughout time. Today we're going to talk to you about Gud Beck, the last known living gay survivor of the Holocaust. So there are, of course, some pretty hefty content warnings for this episode. The biggest one is just general anti-Semitism throughout, and there's mentions of wartime atrocities such as concentration camps, mob violence, executions, forced labor, torture, and bombings. There's also a brief recount of sex between a minor and an adult, and there's generally quite a bit of sexual content. This is obviously going to be one of the heavier episodes that we ever do. If you need to, as always, please skip this episode, but I'd like to encourage you to listen to it if you can. I also wanted to note that this episode isn't a history of how queer people generally were treated by the Nazis. Although Gudbeck was a gay man, and that's a very important part of his story, the discrimination that he faced was primarily because he was Jewish, and so his story is largely different than people who were primarily discriminated against because they were gay. And so I didn't want to shortchange that by just shoving that into an introductory section for this episode. And I think it'd be better if we came back and did its own episode and, and did it justice at some point. I also lastly wanted to note that the only source that I could really find on his life was his own autobiography. So this is going to be very reliable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Everything else, whether it was like articles about him or documentaries or whatever, all led back either to that autobiography or to other direct testimony from him. And it has been noted by some people that certain parts of the story I'm about to tell you seem a little little implausible. Okay. <laughs> so I'm pretty much just going to tell it as he tells it, and we'll discuss it maybe a bit at the end. So yeah, take this with a grain of salt. So Gud Beck and his twin sister Margot were born on the 30th of June 1923. They grew up in Berlin, at first living in a poor district that was home mostly to Eastern European Jews. And then they social climbed a bit and they moved into a nicer neighborhood in 1927. His mother was a Protestant and his father was Jewish. His father's family was from Vienna and he never got German citizenship, but he felt very strongly German. And he was one of the many very secular, upperly mobile, very proudly German Jews who were quite common at the time. His mother's family either mildly frowned on the marriage or they just outrightly disapproved of Jewish people as like a concept entirely. His father intended their marriage to be secular and then his family got involved and the mother ended up converting and Gud and Margot grew up involved in both Christian and Jewish religion. Neither side of the family was enormously observant to start with, but they ended up being very enthusiastically involved in each other's holidays and things, and it, for a while, was fairly peaceful and nice. There had always been anti-Semitism in Germany, but as a child, Gud was more or less able to get by without noticing it. In the early 30s, things began to change. Hitler was elected chancellor in 1933, anti-Semitism intensified, partly as a result of that and partly as a cause of his being elected chancellor. People began to talk about boycotting Jewish businesses and their father's business suffered. But his family, like a lot of families, remained largely unconcerned. They were very moderate politically and they believed that things would ultimately be fine and they wouldn't suffer any terrible consequences. Gud started to be rejected at school. The Nazi flag was put up every day and saluted. And while this happened, he and the other Jewish students were made to stand in the corner because they weren't wow. worthy to salute the flag. His grades started to suffer and he wanted to be moved to a Jewish school. But the school he was in then was a really good preparatory academy and 
they didn't want to take him out of it because they'd worked really hard for him Mm. to be able to go there. So they refused for a year or so. And then in 1934, his mother came to see him race at a school sports day and he won a race. And because he was Jewish, he wasn't allowed to stand on the podium. So the boys who won second, third, and fourth place were put on the podium instead. And she sort of had a realization about what school life was like for him and took him out of it and put him in a Jewish school. And also his sister was taken out of her school at the same time. That seems reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. So it's around this time that this sort of hybrid Christian and Jewish dual life that he's been living isn't really possible anymore. And he felt that the only option left to him was to really strongly identify with Jewishness. He said that my desire to learn grew much stronger, to grow into a community that was mine, that I fit into, and one that did not question my integration in the slightest. Unlike his previous school, the the new Jewish school had an explicit goal of readying its students for immigration. They learned Hebrew, English, and French, and he also took Spanish as an elective. Immigration? Like gaining citizenship or emigration? Emigration. Like leaving. It was, we need to get you out of this country, hmm. like, as soon as possible. Solid. Yep. Did they have where they expected people to go to? Well, Hebrew, English, French makes me think Israel, well, yeah. Palestine, America, France. Was, was Hebrew an established language in Palestine at that point? No, not really. It's undergoing its revival now. Okay. I think because there had already been some big Jewish immigrations to Palestine by then because of anti-Semitism, like big pogroms that had happened in Russia, and the desire to revive Hebrew as like a national language isn't new in the 30s. It's been around for a while, but it's not, you know, obviously what it would become. Yeah. The whole Hebrew situation is so incredible to me. Yeah. I I'm, wish this happened to every dead language. Yes, we should definitely resurrect more dead languages. Mm. I'm so impressed. Yeah, it's delightful. I'm very pleased by it. It's alive again. So yeah, he's learning a lot of languages and he's enjoying that. And he also really enjoyed gym class. He was somewhat athletic himself, but primarily his enjoyment was erotic. He said of it, I enjoyed that the way some people nowadays enjoy porno films. I was about to ask when you said he enjoyed gym class whether it was him checking out hot muscly men. It's 100%, yeah. He has his first sexual encounter at the age of 12 after gym class when he and his teacher oh, no. in the showers. I see. Basically, they had been doing sports of some description and then went to have a shower and God turned around and saw his gym teacher who's in his like early 20s, somewhere around there in like a bathrobe sort of thing and is just kind of overcome with emotion and rushed up to him and kind of buried himself into his robe and they ended up having sex. It never happened again, although God tried to make it happen again. He said that the guy, the first time he was caught in Wes, and then after that he was like, This is not appropriate. Yeah, so he never let it happen again. But Still, I was yeah. surprised it's not a valid excuse. No, 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 it's not. Like, it's a big deal in the autobiography because it's the first time yeah. he has a sexual encounter, but it's not something that he feels any trauma over yeah. anything. Even if he's okay with it, I still don't think that makes it an okay action on the teacher's part. No, yes. no, of course not, yeah. I'm glad it worked out for him, though. After this happened, he went home from school and he told his mother about it. Wow. And her response was just, oh, yeah, I thought so. okay okay and that was that that's not what i was expecting no is there something i should know that i don't know about 1930s berlin and their views on children having sex no or is his mother just odd 
I don't think there really is, and I, I don't know. Like, this may get into where we start wondering how many of the details are accurate because there's just a certain way that he talks about sex and sexual interactions that makes me think that they might have either been exaggerated or that he's – I don't know how to characterize this without just telling you more of the story. Basically, he's just constantly getting into, like – People's pants. Yes, but, like, fairly provocative sexual situations. So what you're suggesting here is that maybe he and the gym teacher didn't have sex necessarily? That's an exaggeration of what actually happened? I mean, you can't know, I, think I guess. It's, I think what I would more suggest is maybe that he didn't tell his mother all the details. Well, I really yeah. don't know. Because he talks about this reaction in the context of his family basically being quite blasé about his sexuality. And yeah, it's just never addressed. There's a difference between him just having sex with men and him having sex with an adult when he's a child, obviously. Mm. I just, I don't know. I don't know. Mm. Like, I feel like it's not written as being a big deal from his point of view because it just wasn't a big deal to him. And he wants to represent it as, like, a positive, casual interaction. Yeah. And also, like, he wrote this, like, 60 years after events. Like, I, I don't know. I certainly don't want to seem like I'm trying to be like, oh, no, probably not much really happened and the gym teacher was, like, completely in the right in whatever really did happen or anything like that. So what we're but, suggesting is maybe that he told his mother about the queer feelings but not. I think it's also kind of a case of once one or two of his – sexual interactions that he has seems a bit a bit fictionalized that kind of casts doubt back on all of it and that's mm. not fair but i don't know i mean he definitely had sex with at least some men he definitely did there's far far more of that to come okay but yeah in terms of his family's attitude towards his sexuality he represented it as like they were pretty practical and matter of fact about it they never would like sit down and have like open conversations about it, but everyone was aware of his preferences. And he puts this down partly to the circumstances that they live in and the fact that this places like an increased importance on social ties and on the family unit, just as like a matter of survival. He said that when you look at it, our lives, especially during my youth, were filled with other problems, real ones, and we came to grips with them together. But yeah, even after the war, when they're all in Israel – they just kind of quite matter-of-factly give him advice on his relationships with his boyfriends and things like that. So Okay. Mm. I mean, mm. that's nice. Yeah. Which I wanted to mention just because I feel like we've got this impression that like, oh, it was in the 30s. Probably they would have been like very opposed to it. And the overwhelming attitude that he seems to come across, not just with his family, but with like wider social groups is just kind of matter-of-fact. Oh, yeah. Okay. Sure. Mm. That's what you're into. Mm -hmm. So after he has this sex with his gym teacher, he – begins to have sort of various like playmates as he calls them who are of his age and they're basically just other boys that he's having these like casual fun no string sexual relationships with um that sounds fake that doesn't sound fake to me no yeah. that's what <laughs> i believe that of teenage boys okay yeah your, your experience of teenage boys has been different to mine this bit sounds fake though. <laughs> he described that sometimes they'd go to the other boy's house and then have sex there Okay, that's plausible. Sometimes they'd have sex on, like, crowded trains. Okay, guys. And sometimes they'd have sex in class when they just, like, have their desks mm. ne next to each other. And so at that point, that to me sounds a little... Mm. Feels like maybe he may might be inserting some fantasy in there. Yeah. In 1936, he and his sister are forced to leave school and find an apprenticeship because of his family's worsening financial situation. 
They both found one in the garment industry. He was working in a formal clothes business. He said that he actually welcomed the change to an extent because it brought money and it made him feel like he had more independence and that he was more adult. That to me also, to be honest, feels a little fictionalized. Whilst I feel like probably those positive elements were present in his feelings at the time, the negative emotions associated with kind of losing his place at school and everything like that here aren't present. And that seems unrealistic to me, given how strong he's felt about that earlier. Hmm. And I I think it, it certainly is a thing throughout this that in really bad situations, he kind of just... He won't dwell on it. He won't, like, emote for paragraphs. He'll just move on. He'll just cut to the next scene. Or he will, like, downplay it. He describes in his job part of what he was doing was measuring, like, businessmen and so forth for trousers and things like that. And he said he'd do a lot of, like, cheeky, overly thorough, unnecessary measuring. I was about to say, was this an erotic experience for him? (laughs) Everything's an erotic experience. That is definitely a trope about the enzyme. Yeah, like that's exactly <laughs> what it is. He'd be like, you know, really like, oh, we just need to make sure we get that crotch measurement. And they didn't like alter the pants specifically, so it really didn't matter. <laughs> so I had trouble in this kind of trying to smoothly go back and forth between here is this, you know, one of the most horrible periods of human history and also just kind of all of the sex content. So now we're up to a bit where I feel awkward switching from this like irreverent sexual banter to very serious wartime stuff. That was very much the the state of 1930s Berlin where mm. everything was terrible and then in the middle there were some lovely nightclubs and Christopher Ishwood flouncing around. To be honest, I feel like that must have been the state of like all of human history. Yes, but also this gets noted in, in histories of, of Berlin mm. as it being this particular hive of activity, even in... in the face of such dire opposition and it being in very, very stark contrast. Mm. And it's, it's definitely like how I'd characterize his autobiography in general, though just veering back and forth between... Terribly bleak. Yeah, here is yet more of my rights being stripped away. Anyway, do you want to hear about this casual sexual encounter now? Yeah. So it's a fairly like accurate representation. It's just one that I worried that I wasn't going to carry off terribly well. Mm-hmm. Anyway, moving on. On March 12th, 1938, Germany invaded Austria. And the Becks lost their Austrian citizenship because Austria, according to Germany, no longer existed. But they're also not able to receive German citizenship, and so they become legally stateless. They're Mm. just Jews now. They received a letter telling them to vacate their apartment within four days. This is devastating to God's father. He'd considered himself, as I said, a very proud German, and now essentially that country didn't want him. And also he'd worked incredibly hard his entire life to move his family up the social ladder and now they had to move back into their old original neighborhood and he just sort of fell into depression for a few days and wouldn't do anything about this and it fell to Gud to find them an apartment and he did so how old is Gud at this point so he's about 15 okay yeah. so he's at an age where he shouldn't be having to do this but he's perfectly capable of it yeah basically he starts realizing that he can't just rely on his family to do everything and he has to kind of look after himself is what he takes from this experience The side of his family that still lives in Vienna never made any move to try and leave Vienna, and all of them, apart from one cousin, died in the camps. Oh, dear. God's parents didn't start thinking about leaving Germany until 1938, and by then it was impossible. At that point, they would have either needed to have like high-up contacts where they were trying to move to, or they would have needed a lot of money, and they didn't have either. Hmm. On the 10th of November 1938, God left his house in the morning, And for the first time, he could tell 
walking around his neighborhood exactly which businesses were Jewish and which weren't because of which ones had been destroyed. So the previous night had been the Reichskristallnacht, the night of broken glass. Uh, it's one of the most famous yeah. pogroms of the Nazi regime. Over 250 synagogues, 7,500 stores, many apartment buildings, cemeteries and Jewish community buildings had been destroyed. Uh, nearly 100 Jews had been murdered and 35,000 were arrested and taken away. Over the next few months, restrictions were gradually put into place uh, on the Jewish community. So radios, telephones, and valuables were confiscated. In 1938, the Becks gave all of their remaining valuables to a non-Jewish family they knew. And in 1945, when the war ended, that family gave them all back to them. Oh, yeah. Found them. <laughs> it's notable that they got it all back because a lot of times that didn't happen when Jewish people during the Holocaust gave their valuables away. Either the people would sell them or they'd just keep them or whatever. So it's nice that they got them back. Hmm. God says, like, he, in his autobiography, refers to, um, like, a non-Jewish person who was entrusted with a Jewish person's valuables as a take-carrion. A take-carrion. As a pun on Aryan. <laughs> oh, <laughs> dear. It's not the last Aryan pun that's going to come up either. Okay. But, yep, as 1938 wears on, um, Jewish people are no longer allowed to run businesses, buy books or newspapers, own motor vehicles, use public transport, go to theatres, cinemas, public bathhouses, pools, and certain streets, or attend Aryan educational institutions. Many Jewish organizations are disbanded, and the Jewish community is forced to pay repair costs for everything destroyed in the pogroms, and they're fined one billion Reichsmarks by the government as an atonement penalty. That sounds like a very arbitrary number. That sounds like, you know when um, in Austin Powers, where the guy turns around and he's like, I will ransom the world for one billion dollars. <laughs> it's a very, like, supervillain thing to do. So most of the remaining Jewish population in Berlin are assigned to work in armament jobs. Guard is sent to work in a cardboard packaging factory. Uh, because the store he's working in isn't allowed to be open anymore. The attitude of a lot of Jewish workers at the time is that they have to work hard and they have to prove that they're good German citizens and that they're of use to the German state. And this was also kind of a way of preserving some dignity for them. In Europe at the time, if you wanted to immigrate to Israel, you had to first spend some time working in a sort of like Zionist preparatory center called a Hakshara, where you study like agriculture and other practical skills and also like Hebrew and things like that. And interest in them increased greatly from 1933, as you can imagine. So God goes to one of these preparatory centers in May of 1940. He starts out just looking after baby cows Aww, in the countryside. Sweet. It sounds nice. And he meets a boy named Ruin there, and they become close, and they go for long hikes, and they have really deep conversations, and oh. you can see where this is going. <laughs> it's not going to a casual, no-strings-attached sexual encounter? No, it's going to an uncasual, yes-strings-attached sexual encounter. Indeed. <laughs> uh, which they have for the first time in a meadow. Oh, <laughs> wow. Does this end terribly? His name is Ruin, and no, they no. slept together in a meadow. It's It's not like... The worst thing that could happen. Okay. It's, like, medium bad. Yeah, they have sex in a meadow because God's meant to be looking after his calves. But instead, this. So he's having a pretty good time. He's in nature, which he's not accustomed to being. He's with a bunch of other guys. He's living this, like, idyllic, isolated life. And it's very easy to romanticize. And then, because they have now spent time in their Zionist training camp, 
they get a place on a list for a boot headed to Palestine and they make plans about how their relationship will continue there. Aww. And then one day when God is harvesting tomatoes, he collapses oh, and oh, he's taken to hospital and they find that he has a tear in his stomach wall. Ooh. So he has an operation and he's fine and he recovers. Well, good. Yeah. And he awakes to find that the ship has left without him. Oh, no. Boyfriend's gone with it. Wow, that is tragic. Mm. They had sex in a meadow. How did I know this was not going to end well? I'm sorry. I think it was probably a fair choice on Ruin's part. Oh, yeah. I, like, I would not hold that against him. No, no, no of course not. not. No, I don't think there's any it all the more tragic. insinuation that you should. So that's happened. After he gets discharged from hospital, he's sent to work back in the carton factory. Um, and he's working 10 hours a day, six days a week in crews made up mostly of Jewish people, but also of working class Germans who they call the proletarian. <laughs> That's your secondary pun. They're done now. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. I thought I should include the bad ones. I mean, yeah, I appreciate I'm it. I'm glad they were in there. So he says that between him, his sister and his father, they've got three paychecks coming in. So they're actually doing pretty well financially. At this job, he meets a man named Aaron Tischauer, who is a Jewish man responsible for maintaining the machinery. God says that so he didn't get his clothes dirty, he'd get naked to lie in the machine to fix it. Sounds fake. (laughs) That definitely sounds like the setup for a porn film where I'm a naked mechanic and I'm covered in grease and I've got an enormous spanner. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Just like you're in a machine with moving parts and genitals are just right there and Mm. I just like take care of yourself, Owen. Yeah. (laughs) I also like this guy apparently having this thought process that is like, "Mm, I don't want to get grease on my overalls. I better get it on my bare skin and then put the overalls on over that. No, there's like a sexy sponging down scene in between, I guess. God would have told us. Okay. (laughs) At any rate, I mentioned this guy half because of the naked machine nonsense and half because he's involved in a a Zionist group that's still active in Berlin and he gets God involved in that, which is quite important. They're the only Jewish groups that are still operating in Germany now. Are they still allowed to operate, or are they like secret oh. underground Zionist groups? They were allowed to operate beyond when a bunch of Jewish groups were allowed to, because for a while, I think the situation was, because they were so focused on leaving Germany, the German government wanted Jewish people out of Germany, so they were kind of like, yeah, cool, leave. And then after a bit, that stopped being the case, and they were made illegal. All right. So they're definitely illegal at a point, and he definitely stays involved in like illegal underground Zionist groups, but I'm not sure at what point that becomes the case. Okay. They're normally meeting – oh, I have a note here that says they meet secretly at people's houses, so I guess it is there already we go. bad. Now we know. Mm-hmm. They're already illegal. Mm-hmm. They are studying like Zionist ideology and studying Hebrew, but they're also studying just like Jewish culture and spirituality – more generally, and also even just, like, non-Jewish-specific culture, and, like, they go to the cinema and stuff. So it's kind of just like a Jewish social group. They have to sneak into the cinema as well. Oh, yeah, and they do. There's a part later on where they mention that going to the cinema, even though it was illegal, could be, like, quite safe because it meant that you were in a sheltered place for, like, two hours or whatever and no one knew you were there. Mm. Oh, yeah. Mm. I mean, that's bleak, but there you go. Yeah, but... They got to see a movie. Yeah. Hooray, hooray. Yeah. But yeah, they're like, for a while, they'll keep going to like concerts and things. Okay. Yeah. So they're meeting at people's houses and they're studying 
Zionism and Hebrew and Jewish culture and spirituality more generally, and then also like literature, both Jewish and not, and like just a whole array of things. They're basically just like a youth group. And it's in this setting that God starts going by the name God. So his name's actually Gerhard. Mm. He starts going by a Hebrew name. Ah, oh, okay. Mm. And so like his sister's name is Margot, but she starts going by Miriam and things like that. In the youth group, there is a boy. Of course there is. <laughs> yeah. And his name is Manfred Lewin. And Oh, you showed me a picture of him. I did show you a picture of him. We have a Tumblr at... Queerisfact.tumblr.com. Where you can see this picture. Yes. So yeah, he's in his youth group. There's a boy named Manfred Lewin. Gad doesn't really think much of him. He's kind of quiet and awkward and he stutters. But then Aww. he notices that when he gets like enthusiastic about something, he can talk very like fluently and passionately and eloquently. So he notices him kind of intellectually and things like, yes, good. Mm. And then the group begins to prepare to put on a performance of the play Don Carlos. Gad is playing Marquis Poser and Manfred Lewin is playing Carlos. I don't know what this play is about, but my understanding of things is that those characters are in a lot of scenes together. So it's the equivalent of that trope where you're playing the lead in a high <laughs> yeah. school play. That's exactly what's happening here, yes. So they get together to rehearse, mm -hmm. and it's like they're in a high school play, yeah. And then one day Manfred leans in over Gud's shoulder to read something in a script, and Gud just kind of has this realization that he wants Manfred to stay there. Oh. And that's his realization that he's got feelings for this boy. Oh. So they get together more and more to rehearse, and God decides that he's going to seduce Manfred. <laughs> that sounds like a very God decision. Yeah. Does he have tips for us? He does kind of talk about how this happens, but I don't think we're, we're going to use these tips. Okay. I'll just, like, I'll get to it. <laughs> Give me a minute. One weekend, the group goes to, like, camp out on the roof of the old Jewish Teachers Association building because they're no longer allowed to leave the city and go camp in, like, a wood or something normal. Yes. Yes. They, so the crew from the high school play go and have an overnight sleepover on the roof of the teachers' building. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Are they about to kiss while they stare at the stars? <laughs> so on. I don't have like lengthy details about how this plays out, but basically what happens is during this camping trip, they have sex for the first time. God decides that he's not going to actively come on to Manfred. He decides that it's going to work better if he plays a passive, quote-unquote, feminine role to seduce him. So um, I definitely misread decides he's not going to actively come on to Manfred. <laughs> <laughs> that might have happened I think actually I'm not sure and so you're saying he doesn't actively come on to Manfred by having sex with him it is Manfred who ends up taking the initiative and initiating their first sexual encounter later Manfred tells Gud that he had seemed like a girl and Gud describes the sex he's having as quote not much like gay sex as one thinks of it today end quote, so like you can make of that what you will. I was going to say, what is he trying to say there? I think the deal is that like the sexual relationships he has, there's a lot of kissing and there's a lot of like caressing each other and things. And Is just what he's saying there wasn't penetration? Yeah, I think he's saying there's not like the sex acts that you would specifically associate with gay men, okay. like anal sex or oral sex or anything like yeah. that. They're just kind of... All right. But yeah, I, I say all that just to kind of talk about how he's kind of conceptualizing these relationships. I thought there were juicy details coming. No, I was going to talk about identity. Oh, okay. That's juicy. God describes Manfred as being straight. 
And he talks about how he would quite often have relationships with men where he's the only man they're ever interested in, he's the only man that they ever have sex with, and apart from him, all of their desires directed towards women, and they go on to have relationships with women. Hmm. He's not particularly concerned about their identity or whatever, like, Mm -hmm. at the time. They're clearly in a relationship with him, they're committed to him at that moment, so that's good enough. He does talk a bit about how he thinks they interacted with concepts of masculinity differently, where like he was very attracted to athletic masculine men, and these men were attracted to him because he was more feminine. Hmm. He also talks about how a big part of whether or not he considers a man to be gay is whether or not they're like specifically interested in interacting with the penis of the man they're having sex with. And he says, I don't think a man is really gay unless he needs the penis of the other man. Okay. So, I don't know. We can talk a bit about what what's going on there if you want. I don't know that we have a super long conversation to have about that, except for the fact that it's now 2017 and, and our understanding has moved on since then. But yeah, like that's the paradigms he's in. Yeah. I mean, he's had to kind of form his own identity. Mm, that's a good point. In the 1930s. Mm. You can say, yeah. It's not something that he, like, writes extensively about, and it's clearly not something that he's, like, really concerned about. Yeah. He just kind of has some thoughts at you. Yeah. Mm. Which, as somebody who does queer history, I immediately jumped on. <laughs> yeah. But basically what he's saying is, well, you can have sex with a man, but it's not really gay sex, unless you're really thinking about his penis. That seems very Viking. Hmm. I mean, I think the thing is, is that, like, Manfred or, you know, other men who end up sleeping with, he, he notes as well that, like, these men would quite often go on to have relationships with women and they'd be, like, entirely happy in these relationships. And I feel like he's kind of projecting assumptions mm. about men, like, based on their kind of gender presentation, almost. Yeah. That they're, like, real, like, men's men. I don't know. That, that didn't sound straight at all. <laughs> <laughs> Like, he's really queer and he's kind of, you know, more feminine and whatnot, but these men are... These men are too manly to be queer in his mind. Yeah. I'm going to give the cop-out and an answer of, like, some of them probably were gay and some of them probably were straight and some of them probably were bi. So, uh, moving on. Anyway, so after they have sex for the first time, Manfred is quite shocked with himself and it takes him a long time until he feels all right with their relationship. There's a lot of them having, like, lengthy, intense emotional conversations and then Manfred feeling really guilty and deciding that they can't see each other again and then that happening for a bit and then he gives in and the cycle begins again. So what you're saying is it is a high school drama. I mean, they're teenagers. <laughs> yes. They're, yeah, thanks to queer teenagers. Yeah. God would spend a lot of time at the Lewins' house and he would sleep in Manfred's bed when he was there. You know, like, they're two horny teenage boys who were sharing a bed They'd end up having sex. Yeah. Inevitably, pretty much. And Manfred eventually decided that, like, okay, it's okay, but only with God. Like, it's all right with you. I don't want to think about it in the wider context. Manfred's family noticed that they had, like, some kind of relationship going on, but just nothing was ever spoken about. All the public buildings in Berlin were required to have air raid patrols, and this also applied to Jewish community buildings that had been closed down, and Jewish people were the ones who had to do those. So God signed on to patrol the former youth alias school with Manfred, and they found a cot in the basement, and they'd use it as their the one place they had where they could be alone and just sort of forget the world for a while while the air raids were going on. Mm. During one of these nights, Manfred gave him a little book he'd made that had, like, anecdotes about their friends in it and poetry he'd written and little drawings. Oh, oh he made, like, a yearbook. Mm. 
He writes about the nights I spend in the basement during the air raids together, saying, Night exists for more than sleep, which is why, my love, we stayed awake so often. God remembered noting at the time that the pictures and the poems weren't very good. <laughs> <laughs> Enthusiastic. I applause for effort, yep. And Manfred himself was aware of this. He had a job. Um, his job was like painting houses with yeah. a man named – like his boss was called Lotha Herman, and he wrote on one of the pages – Lotha Herman only paints rooms, which is why I don't have much idea how to draw cartoons. Nor am I a mighty poet, but I did it as well as I could. Aww. The reason why I mention this is because God kept this for the whole duration of the war, and he held on to it afterwards. And there's an online exhibition on the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum website where you can see every page of it. Oh, that's fantastic. It's wonderful. Yes, we need to put up a link. Yeah, we will definitely put up a link. It's gorgeous and a treasure, and I'm so glad we still have it, even though some 17-year-old boy in the 30s was looking at it and being like, oh, I love you, but mm." (laughs) (laughs) you're not very good at poetry. I've written a lot of bad poetry in my Mm. life. Like, I'm glad that the people I know don't tell me when they go, eh. <laughs> Yeah, there are definitely people I dated in high school who maybe still have poems I wrote that are objectively terrible. <laughs> so the lesson here is scan all of your terrible poetry, children, and upload it to the internet for posterity. So in September of 1941, it became mandatory for all Jews to wear the yellow star. They had to buy them in lots of four, and they weren't cheap. They also found out that the deportations of Jewish people from Berlin to work camps, in heavy quotations, was soon to begin. And in late September, they were told to convert one of the synagogues into a pre-deportation assembly camp. In October, the first transport left for Poland. So people were told street by street to leave their apartments. Uh, They're taken first in passenger trains, later in cattle cars, and on October 26 of 1941, every form of immigration apart from deportation by the Nazis became illegal for Jewish people. In 1942, information about what was happening to those who'd left began to trickle in. BBC Radio recounted rumours of abuse and God and his friends were warned from a contact outside Germany that they shouldn't comply with orders to migrate. Around this time, God meets a woman named Edith Wolf. She's quite important in the like underground resistance work he gets involved with for the rest of the war. She's also half Jewish on her father's side like God, and in 1933 she'd converted. In 1936, her aunt had stolen her membership information from Jewish community files, so kind of for the moment they weren't paying attention to her. Oh, okay. So nobody she knows she's Jewish? Yeah. All right. She she obviously felt very strongly against the Nazi regime and she wanted to do resistance work against it. And she started with just kind of little pinpricks. So she'd make anti-Nazi remarks in public. She'd graffiti library books of Nazi propaganda and she'd send bulk anonymous postcards to the German people. When the Yellow Star was introduced, she sent one saying, Deutschland is now called Braunschweig or Brunswick, as we Mm -hmm. anglicize it, which is another city in Germany. One half wears Nazi brown, and the other half remains schweigt, or silent. Uh, I see. I don't speak any German. No. So, the word she's punning on is Brunswick, or Braunschweig. Oh, Braunschweig. Oh, Braunschweig. Yeah, so brown, half wears Nazi brown, half of you are Nazis, and half of you don't say anything in resistance, so half of you are schweigt. Yes. 
like I assume in German the effect is immediate and cutting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know if that was happening, but I enjoyed it. Yeah. She's just like angrily writing out like five thousand postcards. I <laughs> with a pun on it. <laughs> yes, angry pun. And she also systematically ferrovated on public transport to undermine the state. So she gradually began to perform larger and larger acts of resistance, and ultimately she's helping dozens of Jews at a time go into hiding and maintain their underground lives. That's quite a step up from fair evasion. Like, yes. she does this gradually. <laughs> she doesn't, like, graffiti a book and then one day be like, hang on a second. <laughs> <laughs> so she gets a fairly large circle of both Jewish and non-Jewish people willing to help together and is coordinating them all and they're providing lodgings, food, and money. And this is the work that God is primarily occupied with until the end of the war. So the question of if and when to go underground is one that people are very conflicted about. Generally, what people would do is they'd either hide out in a safe place or they'd assume an entirely false identity. Mm. Some viewed going into hiding as cowardly. Others couldn't stomach the idea of having to maintain appearances under a false identity. So they'd have to, for example, like... Be fake Christians. Yeah, or they'd have to give the Nazi salute Oh yeah, as well, and they just couldn't stomach the idea of having to do that. Other people believed that they had the obligation to save themselves until they're able to make their way to Palestine. Mm. Other people believe that they had an obligation to stick together as a community. You know, like if the rest of your family is going to be deported, how can you not go with them? Mm. So people are very conflicted. There's also the fact that the Nazis would take revenge on the community when individuals within it committed acts of resistance, such as not showing up for deportation. So, for example, 20 people didn't show up to the assembly camp as they had been instructed. So 20 other Jewish people were arrested and held, and eight were executed, including one of their friends, Alfred Selbia. So they held a memorial service at one of their houses for him, and one of their group criticized those who were helping people go underground, saying, all of us who spoke out in favor of becoming illegal have driven him and the others to their deaths. Then one day when God is at work, Manfred's younger brother Rudy comes by and tells him that the family's got their lists. He asks him to come by that night to see Manfred one last time, and God does so. But when he arrives, he's found that only Rudy and um, another one of Manfred's brothers, Shlomo, is left. The rest of the family had been taken earlier that day, and the brothers had been at work, so they'd been missed. They were sad, but they were determined. They were going to go to the assembly camp the next day to be with the rest of their family. Um, so they're relatively calm. They're just sitting in their kind of empty apartment waiting for morning. God, however, is distraught, and the next day when the brothers go to the assembly camp, he doesn't know what to do, and he ends up going to Manfred's boss. He doesn't really have a plan in mind. He's vaguely hoping that the man will give him a letter or something like that saying that Manfred's indisposable and he has to come back to work, so release him. Instead, the man tells him, well, I've got a plan, but you're going to have to have a lot of nerve. And he okay. gives him his son's Hitler Youth uniform. Oh, God. Okay. Yep. Well, I went from zero to 60 quite quickly. Yep. So God puts it on. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm so frightened for him. Mm. And he goes to the assembly camp and he asks to see the overseer. And is shown to the overseer and he gives the Nazi salute and he says that, you know, in your camp there's a Jew called Manfred Lewin. He has the keys to some apartments I've been renovating with my father, and we need him so we can get the keys and we can see which ones belong to which doors and we can get back to work. 
The man, like, barely pays attention. He goes, yeah, all right, sure, go get him. And Manfred's brought. He doesn't ask to see the keys, which is good because Manfred doesn't have any keys. And they turn to go. The man stops them and says, what, you're going to bring it back, right? And God just kind of blasely, carelessly says, well, yeah, what would I want with a Jew? And they have a nice little laugh together over that, and then they leave. Wow, well done. This still is going to go horribly wrong, isn't it? So they're walking down the street together in their neighborhood, and God feels quite triumphant, he feels quite secure, and he takes out a 20-mark note and offers it to Manfred and tells him to go to God's uncle's house and wait for him there, and he's going to go into hiding. So Manfred looks at the 20-mark note, and he looks at God, and he says, God, I can't go with you. My family needs me. If I abandon them now, I could never be free. And he doesn't say goodbye. He just turns and he goes back into the camp. God never sees him again. The whole family is taken to Auschwitz and they don't survive. God writes about this in those seconds, watching him go, I grew up. The story as God presents it moves on quite quickly and I feel quite uncomfortable being like, anyway, so then at work, but he doesn't dwell on it. He does say that he never got over the loss. He buried himself in his illegal activities and in work. Is work still the cardboard box factory? Yeah, I believe it is. At some point he gets switched to – actually, I think it might be around now that he gets switched to working unloading potatoes from a train. Okay. But he just does kind of like physical labor for the rest of – Yeah. Yeah. So, yep, he's working. He's helping people in the underground. And then in March of 1943, he briefly hides a young man named Zvi Abrahamson in his family's attic. Zvi Abrahamson's parents had been collected by the Gestapo, but he'd been working the night shift, and so he'd been missed, and he's trying to find somewhere to hide out now. I wish I had a picture to show him, to show you of him, because he's quite distinctive looking. He, God describes him as blonde, quiet, mischievous, athletic, with strange, deeply shaded eyes, and like he really, really has those eyes. I was about to ask whether Gad is into this. I don't think Gad describes men unless (laughs) Unless he's into them. (laughs) I was into him all the way up to his Steve Buscemi eyes. He liked it with distinctive eyes. Thank you for that clarification. So they sit up all night talking and he stays in the attic for a few nights before they find him somewhere else to go into hiding. But they stay in contact because he becomes a part of their underground circle doing the work helping people living illegally and he gets involved in supplying and distributing forged ration cards to underground Jews. One day God and Zvi decide to kind of like sneak out of the city and go out to the forest and they go swimming there. Oh. Yeah. There's there's bomber planes going overhead but nevertheless they describe it as this really like nice peaceful moment. They're lying on the banks there and Zvi makes this really like awkward move to try to embrace God and then they end up entering into a sexual relationship. To nobody's surprise. To nobody's surprise. This is another one of God's lovers who he describes as being straight, but nevertheless he never struggles with the idea of being with another man like Manfred did and it's not really a problem and they have a pretty long-term relationship. In 1943, in June, they get a letter from a friend of theirs, Carla, who's at Auschwitz. She had flirted with an SS guard to get him to send a birthday card to her friend back in Berlin for her. And she wrote this kind of coded letter that included the line, Life and work would be tolerable if there wasn't always so much smoke around the chimney. Many of us have already joined Alfred, Alfred being their friend who died earlier. 
So now they knew. The same month, Edith got a letter telling her to report to the Gestapo. And she, who she'd helped so many people go underground, she'd persuaded so many people to do so, but she ultimately decided not to do it herself. And she reported to them and she was tortured and then sent to the camps. She does survive. She lives until 1997. Okay. Um, but she's out of our story now. It seems like their group is kind of being closed in on other people they know are also arrested or told to report and are tortured, and one of them gives up Zvi's name as someone who's involved in the underground, and he is arrested, and he decides to try to lie well enough to be seen to be cooperating, and he's pretending to show them like meeting places and things like that, but he can't carry it off, and he's beaten and tortured. Uh, he loses all of his front teeth, and then he's put in a prison camp in Berlin. He's being kept in a crowded cell where it's got a barred window, and he notices that next door is a room with air raid supplies, and it includes picks and things like that. He also notices that the Jewish cemetery that's adjacent has a hole in the chain link fence, and then an air raid occurs one night, and the prisoners have to line up in front of their cells, and the supply room is unlocked because it's, it's, the it's air full of air raid supplies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he sneaks in there, he grabs a pick, and he hides under his bed. The next day, he and his cellmates pry the grate off the window and then prop it back up into place and hide the pick again. And they decide that they're going to escape on the 31st of December because they think, given New Year's, that the guards will be like, yeah, drunk, having a party, distracted. Yeah. Yep. Luckily, that night, there's also a bombing. So all of the lights are out. Perfect. And they pry the grate off the window and three of them get out before the guards are alerted and the rest are stopped. So the three of them run to the hole in the cemetery fence. They run through it. Bombs are falling overhead. They run through the cemetery to the street on the other side. Um, and then they're stopped by a policeman. And he says to them, what, are you crazy? You need to be in an air raid shelter. And so they go to an air raid shelter. And then when the bombing's over, they all scatter and go into hiding. Wow, that worked out. Yeah. <laughs> so God hears that Zvi has gotten out and he guesses correctly that he's gone to stay with his aunt who lives kind of like further out. Mm-hmm. like in the outskirts or suburbs or whatever of Berlin. He has never met the woman, but he knows some random details about her. He knows the ration card office she goes to. He knows she rides a bicycle, and he knows she has thick glasses. So he stakes it out until he sees a woman who looks like that. <laughs> and then he approaches her, and he goes, Aunt Marie? <laughs> and they they speak, and she tells him where he can go to meet up with Spee. When he gets there, he sees this, like, old man with no teeth and he doesn't recognize him, but then realizes, yeah. of course, who it is. And they're reunited. They get him new front teeth. They get him treatment Aww. for TB and gradually he recovers. And he ends up living with God some of the time and gets involved again in underground activities. So he's come out pretty well from that whole experience, all things considered. Yeah. 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 Well, new set of front teeth. Mm. I didn't know that dental surgery was that advanced in the 30s. They had prosthetic teeth. It may have been a plate or something. Mm. Yeah. Which isn't particularly, like, advanced. Yeah. I, I don't so know. they had, like, false teeth. That makes sense. Yeah. So they start getting huge amounts of money smuggled to them from Switzerland from Jewish underground members who had already escaped there, and they're using it to help people survive in Germany. Um, so that makes things a bit easier for them. They're also helping smuggle people out when they can. And then a guy contacts them and he says that he has been contacted by someone in the underground who deals in jewelry and other valuables and he wants to meet and arrange potentially selling some stuff to them. I don't fully understand the deal here. 
But basically, currency is like not stable because of the war. Mm. Um, The German economy was a mess, I think, if I remember rightly. Yeah. So it would be good for them to have assets that were just cash, like to also have... Like gold or something. Yeah. So the end of the war seems to be approaching. They're desperate for assets like that. And even though things seem a little weird, they're like, all right, let's just give it a go. And then basically the guy can tell that because they're willing to take him up on this, they have enough money that they have to be a group of people. They're not just like one person. Hmm. And so he rats them out. And that night, Svi and Gud go home, they go to bed, and they wake up at 4am with the SS pointing guns at them. What year are we in now? Early 1945. Okay. Like, stuff's coming to an end. Home stretch. So Gud is put into a cell. He considers hanging himself. And he's held there for a week, and then both Svi and Gud are brought before the SS for interrogation. Gud recognizes the man who he's brought before. For interrogation, he'd owned a tobacco kiosk in their neighborhood and he'd given Gud and Margot lollipops and they'd been children. Or that's too much of a coincidence and he's a liar, like up to you. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, it's it's his diary. Mm. On the desk, he's got Gud's briefcase and next to it some thumbscrews and he starts questioning him. He's trying to kind of answer him enough that stuff's not going to escalate, but also kind of like not really say anything. He hears as we start screaming next door and things seem to be escalating in his room as well. So he just says, we know each other. Do, do you remember me? And reminds him how he knows him. And the guy is like disquieted by this. So he so tells him to get out and he's sent back to his cell. He gets questioned again. Never by that man, though. I feel like he was must have been tortured. Mm. From all accounts before this, they're very liberal with the use of torture. He's there for like quite a while. But he seems, never talks about it? Yeah, he just gives no details and it also seems odd that like we know he does mention that Zvi is being tortured so surely also God was being tortured hmm. but he just doesn't interact with that at all that seems fair yeah yeah no of course but I just think it's kind of worth noting that it may have happened yeah that like the most horrific directly affecting him elements of his story he just says nothing about Basically, by this time, though, the end of the war is fast approaching and there's no more transports to work camps or death camps. So he's just kind of being left in prison because they don't have anywhere to send them. Then a bomb falls on the prison and God gets buried in the rubble. And when he's dug out, he's taken to like the hospital in the building and he's unconscious there for a while. And then on April 20th, when the Soviets arrive in Berlin, the other prisoners are all released, and Gud gets carried downstairs on a stretcher to a room. As V is sitting there in the room, he's not doing well, either physically or mentally. And they're just left there. A member of the staff gives him their release papers, and then all of the staff flee. So they wait. The Battle of Berlin goes on outside. On April 24th, the door opens, and a Russian soldier comes into the room. They're hiding in. He looks at them. They look at him. They're not sure if he's going to kill them. And then he reaches into his coat, and he pulls out a piece of paper, and he says in Yiddish, is there someone here named Gubbeck? Okay. <laughs> I didn't expect this at all. <laughs> no. So what's happened is contacts over there in Switzerland have told everyone that they possibly know like, spread the word, someone important to us, Gudbeck, he's in Berlin in a Gestapo prison somewhere, find him. Huh. So God goes, yeah, that's that's me. And the soldier says, brothers, you're free. Oh. And that's the end of the war for them. 
That's also the end of his autobiography. It was published, I don't have the exact date in front of me, but it's like sometime in the 90s. And it does promise at the end that he's going to publish a second volume. And it gives a little bit of a rundown about what that will go over, which is essentially mm. the rest of his life. It was never published. I tried to find if it had been something that had been in the works and then he'd died before he finished it, before he could complete it. Or, you know, if it was like unfinished in an archive somewhere because, hey, I have a PhD coming up. Um, <laughs> but I, I couldn't find anything. No one seems to have mentioned it. In any case, though, he stayed in Germany until 1947 and then he immigrated to Israel. He spends the rest of his life either helping people integrate to life either in Israel or in Europe after the Holocaust or involved in Jewish education more broadly. He also has a prolific career as a lecturer. He and Svi's relationship continues after the war, but eventually they break up. And in 1976, Gard meets a man named Julius Laufer, who becomes his lifelong companion. He returns to live in Berlin in 1979, and he lives there until his death in 2012 at the age of 88. It's pleasing to me that he gets to live for a while in, in his city as a free man. Yeah. It's quite an intense decision to not only stay there after the war, but then to move back there. Yeah. As I said, my my sources for this, or my source for this rather, is pretty much just his autobiography. There was a film made about him, which I was not able to get a hold of, which I'm really sad about. And the filmmakers had this to say about him. For somebody who was threatened and persecuted by the Nazis, God's stance towards life is puzzlingly positive. When talking about his youth in Nazi Germany, God always keeps his agency and his good spirit. But he also tends to conceal his suffering. The Nazis did everything to turn life into hell for Jews, but God talks about making love during heavy bombardment. Thus, there is a counterfactual ring to some of his stories, a touch of wishful thinking. Sometimes I think it has something to do with his homosexuality, with the ability to sexualize even the most obnoxious situations. That was a hmm. weird statement. When was this film made? Let me finish. Sometimes I think it is God's revenge on the Nazis. He won't let them define the past. He resists being turned into a victim, even half a century later, by well-meaning but largely ignorant filmmakers like ourselves. That uh, resolved our earlier question. Well-meaning yeah. but largely ignorant. Yeah. And I guess we talked about it throughout his potential like fictionalizing of yeah. his story. There is a lot of, and then we had sex in a meadow, and then we went swimming in a beautiful lake, and then we had yeah. sex on the shore of the lake. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I just kind of wanted to make the point that, first of all, say what you want about their wording, but, like, he does kind of, I think, downplay the most terrific things yeah. that happened mm -hmm. to him. And I think it's interesting the role that his sexuality and his kind of like sex life during the war played for him in telling the story. Like, I think it was something that was just enormously psychologically important mm. to him. Yeah. As a buffer. Yeah. There's a documentary called Paragraph 175 that's about how gay men and women were persecuted during the Nazi era by the Nazis, and it features him in it, and he's telling the interviewer this story about how, like, the bombs were falling and I was having sex with my boyfriend. And the interviewer stops him and he goes, Wait, do you mean to tell me that while the Nazis were bombing, you, you were having sex? And he's like, of course I did. Are you stupid? Come on, keep up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Was it? I think that's almost fair. It's not as though people stop having sex because there's a war on. Mm. And certainly if you're about to explode, then why not? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's like you said, it's psychologically important to him. Mm. He's got a coping mechanism. It's like this this positive thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I imagine it's kind of a way to retain humanity. Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure that there are people for whom the war was an enormously desexualized time. I'm, I'm sure there are a huge variety of experiences in here. Mm. That's definitely how people think about like the 30s or the 40s or wartime mm. is a very like desexualized that was certainly not his experience. Yeah. Certainly, yes. I don't think that should invalidate his experience. He's not a very big name in history in a way that really mm. confuses me. Like, this is just such a valuable record that we have, not only as, like, like resistance efforts by Jewish people during the war are enormously kind of ignored in, like, mainstream uh, World War II history narratives, mm-hmm. I've heard. And the ones that do get talked about tend to be, like, in the ghettos and in the, the forests with the partisans in kind of mm-hmm. Poland and Lithuania and whatnot. And active armed resistance. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, this kind of thing in Berlin doesn't get talked about all that often. So it's enormously valuable in that sense, but also the fact that he was just around and being queer during that. It's just, mm. why, like, why don't we talk about this more? Whenever we do one of these episodes, I do, like, a quick look to at least kind of get a survey of what kind of, like, academic works exist on them, even if I'm not going like, to read it all. And there's nothing. Literally like, nothing? Pretty much, yeah. I couldn't find a single book about him that's not this one. Couldn't find any academic articles that were about him, just ones that like mention him in an offhand sense. And I think that's a missed opportunity, and I think people should pay attention to him. Certainly anything this comprehensive deserves its... Deserves a look at, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's a very interesting figure about whom there's surprisingly little academic conversation, so I'm glad we could try to generate some interest at least. Thank you if you're stuck with us through this episode. I know it's a pretty harrowing topic, and I hope it was interesting and not too much of a uh, depressing commute. This has been Queer as Fact. You can find our other episodes at queerasfact.podbean.com. We're also on Tumblr as Queer as Fact, on Facebook as Queer as Fact, and on Twitter as Queer as Fact. If you want to email us directly with any any comments, anything you liked, anything you didn't, any suggestions for future content, we would love to hear from you. And we're at queerasfact at gmail.com. Once again, I'm Eli. I'm Amy. I'm Irene. We'll be back with our next episode on the 15th of July when Alice will be talking to you about queer women in medieval Arab literature.